Welcome to this edition of DCS Talks, a podcast production of the Tennessee Department of Children's Services. The intention of DCS Talks is to promote dialogue among child welfare professionals, foster parents, and the entire community about ways to prevent child abuse and neglect. I'm Serena Wilson. And I'm Amanda Law, and we're your hosts for this edition. January is National Human Trafficking Prevention Month, and DCS Talks has invited two subject matter experts to speak on how trafficking is assessed and addressed at the department. The focus of the work of DCS is the commercial sexual exploitation of minors, or as we refer to it, CSIM. Commercial sexual exploitation of minors involves the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain some type of commercial sex act with a minor. It can happen in any community, and victims can be any race, gender, or nationality. Traffickers might use violence, manipulation, or false promises of romantic relationships to lure victims into trafficking situations. DCS works with a wide network of partners to address CSIM, including state and federal law enforcement, court systems, legislators, service providers, and community members to address this complex social problem. Today, we have Pierce Beckham with us. Mr. Beckham is the Senior Director of Investigations in the Office of Child Safety here at DCS. He is instrumental in policy development, training, and service development. He also conducts a lot of data analysis to address commercial sexual exploitation of minors in Tennessee. We also have Dr. Martha Wyke with us, who is a clinical psychologist in the Knoxville region at DCS. Dr. Wyke works to develop individualized care for minors who have experienced commercial sexual exploitation. Dr. Wyke also is a key leader of the Community Coalition Against Human Trafficking in Northeast Tennessee. Mr. Beckham, Dr. Wyke, welcome to DCS Talks. Thank you for having us. So first, we're going to talk to Mr. Beckham. Tell us about your current role with the department and and some of your experiences in child welfare. Serena, again, thank you for having me. My current role in our central office is to provide administrative and supervision support across all 95 counties in Tennessee. We and DCS have direct case management in child protection in all counties across the state. How I got to this position, I myself was a case manager. I worked in primarily rural areas of Tennessee, but then I shifted to a metropolitan area that covered about eight counties before moving up to our central office and working statewide. So you've really had that on-the-ground experience and have that to bring to the role as the senior director. That's wonderful. It informs everything that I do, and as we expand into new areas such as CSUM, I keep that uh, at the forefront of what does this really look like for workers and staff as well as the work that we do in homes across the state. Well, I really appreciate your experience. So, Mr. Beckham, I know you've conducted a lot of work to implement the Preventing Sex Trafficking and Strengthening Families Act of 2014. Can you provide us with a brief explanation about how that law impacts Department of Children's Services? It impacts us really in two ways. It impacts us by expanding as well as by focusing in. And let me talk about the expanding part first. 
First, it allowed the department to become involved in situations where historically and traditionally we had not. Mm. The primary way that a case comes to our attention is that a caregiver is responsible. That can be a professional caregiver such as a teacher or a coach, but primarily we're talking about family, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles. The law expanded our jurisdiction by changing the definition of caregiver to include non-related, non-professional folks who have control over youth, particularly human traffickers. They were specifically carved out as caregivers for departmental jurisdiction. So that really expanded our scope where we didn't have to have one of those other links uh, between the child and a individual. It is a huge shift. It required changing how we trained our child abuse hotline, which operates 24-7, 365. It was a mindset shift for frontline staff in how they viewed cases and making sure that they were looking not just at the household, but how outsiders may have infiltrated that household. Right. That is a really different way to look at how we conduct our practice in a lot of ways. There's a second way that the law required us to expand, and that was really to expand to a different set of community partners and service providers Mm -hmm. that have been established in Tennessee that address human trafficking and really bridge some gaps in the way that we were addressing the issue as well as the way that they were addressing the issue. And we've been fortunate that there's a strong collaboration. There are not Mm -hmm. just words on paper and memoranda of understanding around how we work together, but boots on the ground. Anybody that works in the field from the human trafficking agents at the Tennessee Bureau of Investigations to the intervention specialist at the anti-trafficking organizations, they can pick up the phone and call us and we can do the same to them to coordinate the response to ensure that anyone that has been identified gets the services, both from a law enforcement perspective, but from a therapeutic and supportive perspective that they need. The other piece that the law changed was that it's how we focus. We were actually seeing a, a lot of human trafficking cases. We just weren't calling them human trafficking or CSUM as the department has come to define it. So it was a way of looking at cases that we were already seeing in that new light, in that expanded light with our law enforcement and non-for-profit partners so that we could work those cases appropriately and really support protective caregivers and Mm -hmm. support the children that were experiencing that in in the most appropriate way. And it really set up a new frame to understanding sex abuse in a lot of ways. It was previously being investigated as sex abuse, it still is sex abuse, but that added component of a commercial exchange really changes the way that, like you said, changes the way that we provide services. It does, because the impact on children and youth is adds that additional dynamic. There, It's not just the trauma of the event and all the manipulation that can go into that there is a sense of now I am just an object and Mm -hmm. that is reinforced by this exchange of goods or exchange of services. Sometimes it is just being paid for and having to Mm -hmm. really wrap our arms around that situation to support the child in processing, not just the trauma of the event itself, but all the other facets that have gone into that so that they can move 
from being a victim into a, being a survivor. Yes, and that ultimately that is our goal from going from victim to survivor. One of the laws that changed is that children can no longer be arrested for prostitution. And so that was very important to make these changes. It did. It shifted not just law enforcement's understanding, but child welfare's understanding. Many of these youth would be picked up with a prostitution charge and be labeled as a delinquent and be shifted to the juvenile justice side of child welfare. The safe harbor law that went into effect removed prostitution as a criminal charge for minors and really shifted any child that found themselves in a situation like that into a child protection side of child welfare. So really looking at the dynamics, not that the child has done something bad, but what has led a child to find themselves in the situation and what are those yeah. taking risk issues that have made that child vulnerable to this type of exploitation and addressing it through that lens. Right. This law has asked us to gather information and data. What are we learning about CSIM in Tennessee from the information we have gathered in changing the way we serve this population? One thing that we have definitely learned is that it exists in every community. Mm. It is not something that just exists in an urban area in an area with rest stops or that is just mm -hmm. off of an interstate. Many of those traditional myths of trafficking have not held up. We do still see them there, but we see them in nearly every county over the past two years has reported at least one case of human trafficking. DCS divides the state of Tennessee in 12 regions. Every region reports this on a regular basis that we have these cases we are seeing these children. So it is something that affects every single community. We find that it is not just cross state lines, although that does exist. Tennessee is landlocked and has eight surrounding states. So we do see cross jurisdictional issues with our sister states, but frequently the types of cases that DCS sees are within the same state and oftentimes they are familial trafficking. This is where a member of the family is the one that is either engaging in that exchange with a third party. So they're bringing somebody else in outside the home and providing a child in their home to that person sexually for some good or service, or it's happening with somebody in the home themselves. So we have had situations where the parent or caregiver in the home is also engaging in sexual acts and getting something back from the child, that commercial exchange does not have to be for money itself. It can be a promise of, I will house you, I will feed you, mm -hmm. things that we think that parents would do or caregivers would do because they are the parent or caregiver of that child. They right. have taken that role and then added the sexual component and saying, you will not get this unless you do this for me. And that counts as human trafficking in the state of Tennessee. Wow. That is very dark. And that is the charge of Department of Children's Services. Like you said, we have 95 counties. We've had at least one case in every county reported. And we're learning that primarily it's family that are the traffickers. There's been a lot of media attention about traffickers snatching children out of shopping center parking lots. Are we finding that to be the case in Tennessee? Or is it primarily families? 
We are finding it to primarily be families. That is not to say that there aren't non-family members or strangers to the child that are finding ways to get access to children, but it is not where someone is driving through a parking lot or driving down the road and snatching a child into the car. We actually find that social media and the internet, it would be the main way that folks outside the family are connecting with children, establishing relationships, and really trying to find some way to exploit that child. So we do look for underlying risks that a child may experience, whether that's bullying in school, whether that's other forms of abuse or neglect that someone from the outside could exploit and position themselves as this child's savior or their way out of the situation. And then really their, their main purpose is to take the child out of their current situation and put them into a much worse situation through human trafficking. Wow. Well, Mr. Beckham, thank you so much for your diligent work. I know that it has been a lot of work to implement this law and data systems and provide services. Our audience are the child welfare community, but also the public. And if someone is aware of a minor who's being trafficked or or even suspects that a minor is being trafficked, what should they do to report it? They can always report it to our child abuse hotline. That, again, is available 24-7, 365 days a year Mm -hmm. for someone to report concerns about human trafficking or any other concerns about a child who is not being cared for. And that number is 1-877-237-0004. There's also a link on our website at tn.gov slash DCS that will take you to the phone number as well as there is the option of submitting a referral of child abuse suspicions online. So those are the two main options to report it to us at the department. Thank you. And again, thank you so much, Mr. Beckham, for being interviewed in honor of National Human Trafficking Prevention Month. And we will now shift to talk about some of the service provisions and psychological impact with Dr. Wyke. So thank you again, Dr. Wyke, for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Can you tell us about your role with DCS and how long you've been with the department? I have been with the department twice. I have worked as a psychologist in a lot of different settings, but I've worked with the department twice. The first time was in 1999, and I worked in the Northeast region. When the regional psychologist position was first created, it was a part-time position. And I worked with um, around 700 or 800 children in custody at any given time and about half that many at risk at any given time, consulting with case managers and leadership, always consultation. And, of course, I didn't really work with all those children. I worked with the ones of that population that were brought to me to consult on. And then when it became a full-time position, I left, went back into private practice for about eight years, and then I returned in the east region of the state and worked there until the present. I worked there for about, I'm at about um, seven or eight years at this point, again, full-time. And then I moved back to the northeast region. So my job has always been consulting with case managers to help get the mental health needs of the children in custody and at risk met. So it's trying to help identify needs and guide case managers and leadership 
And generally, it's dealing with trauma. It's treating it's treating trauma, but I don't do the treatment. I consult on the treatment of trauma. Great. Thank you so much. That's a perfect description. I remember in what feels like another life, you consulting on cases that I carried. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> yes. So, Dr. White, we know that you are heavily involved with the Community Coalition Against Human Trafficking. So, can you tell us more about the coalition? I can. And I got involved, the way we all get involved is we have one case. We just have that one child or teenager, and it leads you down a certain path. And that that was my story. The Community Coalition Against Human Trafficking is the victim service agency that serves as a single point of contact for all of East Tennessee. It's 33 counties in East Tennessee. And over the past few years, we've partnered together to pioneer a couple of multidisciplinary teams. One is centered around Knoxville, and it's called Free Knox Kids. And another one is now in the Tri-Cities area, and it's called 423 Unsilenced. But the work groups are community partners, Department of Children's Services, law enforcement, and the community coalition members. And... That is what they do. They do prevention work. They do direct service work as well for victims of human and labor trafficking, and they have grown tremendously over the past few years. So about four years ago, I attended a two-day training put on by the Community Coalition Against Human Trafficking, and it was mostly designed to educate the community about human trafficking. There were some other DCS employees that were at that Training. It was a really good training. I learned a lot. But about halfway through the first day, I realized that they were only talking about adults, how to treat adults. And the whole two days was about treatment of adults. And the more I looked around, I knew there were people there I knew who were providers for children. They treated our children in custody. There were other DCS workers. So about halfway through the first day, I started talking. And finally, I got up at the lunch break and said, hey, if anybody wants to talk about treating children, you just pull up a chair and we'll make a circle and we'll talk about that. And many came, many came. And the other thing that was happening at the same time is that here's Beckham and Central Office were sort of rolling out the DCS plan to address the strengthening families mandate. And their plan was started with identifying victims of human trafficking which makes sense. You identify them. So he was identifying them and coming out with policies on what to do when you identify them. I'm like, and then what? Then what? So so then we have to treat them. And we hadn't gotten to the then what yet because we were still identifying them. And I'm like, well, this isn't working for me very well. So we decided as a group of the clinicians and the other DCS workers who pulled up chairs that day four years ago we decided that we needed to figure out how to treat those kids. And we already figured out that we already had the kids. We've always had the kids. We've always had them. But all of a sudden, we're looking at them in a new light. We're identifying those children. And then we we didn't know what to do. So I was pretty sure that the way to do it was if we had money and if we had a place and if we had some food, we could just bring in an expert to train the therapist. That's what I wanted to do. That was my vision. It was a great idea. And we set about to do that, and we had a plan and everything, and we had no money. So people in the community donated the place and the food and everything else, and speakers came for free. And we had invited something like 70 master's-level clinicians to 
come and we realized that none of this was actually going to work because there is no standard of care. No one knows how to treat the victims. It hadn't been figured out yet. The research hadn't been done. There was no evidence base, and nobody had the answer. So now we have a training with people coming to get the answer, and there was no answer. But that was dark day. But what we did with that is we, we still brought the experts, and we just said, you know what, we don't know the answer yet, but we'll just figure it out together. And that went over fairly well, I guess, and we began to figure out how to treat the victims ourselves. Different people reviewed literature, and I, I had um, a graduate student or two at that time who made it their master's project. So out of that came a partnership between the Community Coalition and the Department of Children's Services in the east part of the state. Four years later, the work groups are still going, and I, I feel like we have so much of a better grasp on what to do in treatment and the other aha moment was when I thought I, I had the answers. I thought I at least had some of the answers. Because people were calling me with the questions, and I was feeling pretty good about it. Until I got this call and realized that I really didn't have any of the answers when someone calls me after hours in real time, and they want to know where to place that child that they've just picked up from runaway, and it all fell apart. And I realized that I had to have people that I could call after hours who really knew what I was talking about and who really knew about trafficking. So we created a network, and it's been phenomenal. What a fantastic journey from identifying a population that needs help to coming to this point where we have such a large community of people who are there to help and trying to find the best way to help. It's been a phenomenal journey. The other thing that we did that was a little bit different about the support group is, you know, I'm a psychologist. I supervise no one. I happily supervise no one. I have no power over anyone. The way we set it up is come if you're interested. So it wasn't within the department. It wasn't that upper management came. The people who came in the beginning, it would always be that case manager who had that kid and who needed to talk about, about that issue. And so it was really grassroots. And I don't know if we ever had many answers, but at least at least there was always somebody to talk to who really understood. So the people who did come wanted to be there, and I think that's the strength of that group. And then the partnership has grown tremendously. That's so fantastic to hear. I know we hear a lot here in East Tennessee about the work that Community Coalition Against Human Trafficking is doing and all the different ways that they're growing. And so I'm very happy to see that group growing and all the work that they're doing. So... Now, as a DCS psychologist, we know that you work directly with some of the CSIM cases and identifying those ways to meet the needs of the survivors. So are there some key things to know or tips about working with a child or youth who's been trafficked for foster parents, providers, or case managers? There were so many things I thought I knew, so many things I thought were true that were just wrong. So that's my first message is... I mean, I about killed over when Serena thought I was a subject matter expert, because I certainly don't consider myself to be a subject matter expert. But that said, you know, you kind of deal with what's on your plate, and this was on my plate. So here are some things that I've learned. Such a good question. All of these children and adolescents have been victims of trauma, and they've all been victims of sexual abuse. Didn't know that going in. What I couldn't understand was, so... From a treatment standpoint, what's different? Why is it we can't just treat the sexual abuse like we always do and move on? I finally did get that answer. The answer was that what's different is the exploitation piece, and that is the answer. It's an additional piece. So what I've learned is 
We often identify the teenagers. We rarely identify the little children. That's always bothered me because the little children are out there. And there are a lot of little children out there who are trafficked. There really are. And the good thing about that is they don't know they were trafficked. So here's a tip. If you have a child who is trafficked who doesn't know he or she was trafficked, don't tell it. There's no advantage if you've been sold by your parent for drugs or something like that. There is no need to know that. No good's going to come from that. Just don't tell it. And then you don't have to treat that per se, that piece of it, because the child doesn't know it. The aha moment for the teenagers is when they figure it out. At some point, they put it together. They didn't look at it that way, but all of a sudden, one day, they realize it. That's a tough moment. Know that these children are overrepresented in our runaway population. They're overrepresented in our juvenile justice population. They're overrepresented in anybody who's ever spent the night in detention. And once you've had the case, it changes how you look at things. Every runaway you look at, you need to think, what was the cost of those two weeks that child was gone? What was the cost of that food? What was the cost of that housing? And how did that child pay? Because you know they didn't have any money. What's the payment source? What's the cost of the drugs for the parents? How are they paying for those drugs? Just have the question. If you have a pregnant young girl who says the father's her boyfriend, who do they call a boyfriend? How old is he? Most of these teenagers do call the trafficker the, the boyfriend, and they believe that that person is the boyfriend. But what, what was the cost of that? And then just listen, because despite the fact that Child Protective Services and the hotline are identifying these cases, most of the cases I know about are not coming to my attention in that way, and they never have. They're coming from a foster care worker or a juvenile justice worker who's had that child, I mean, you know, Amanda, who's had that child for two years, and they realize it. They suddenly go to a training and realize that their kid has been trapped. That's how they're coming to my attention, and that's also true. Or the child just then tells. Um, so there are lots of it. Law enforcement may bring these kids to the table. Um, a lot of times, in the beginning, the first cases I knew about were through the FBI. And the, the more you look, the more you see. Right. I think that's great advice. I know, just like you were saying, Dr. White, sometimes looking back before, because I case managed before this was such a big focus, even looking back on cases, I, I wonder and I have questions. And so I think really being aware and being conscious to look for those things and dig deeper to look under what's right in front of you could be really helpful. I had a case. I sat through a child and family team meeting for an hour. I consulted before it. And for some reason, the worker, I must have said something, and she sent me a police report, and it said that this girl's older sister had been trafficked. And the sister was two years older and was still with the trafficker. I'm like, if the older sister has been trafficked, this kid has to. And it was by a man who had many, many victims over several decades. I will guarantee that the girl that we sat and talked about for an hour was also had been trafficked or was being trafficked. She just wasn't seen through that lens in that meeting. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. That, that is a good point. It's dark, and people don't want to talk about it. They don't want to see it. They don't want to believe it. And who, who comes to me as the case manager who does see it? She doesn't want it on her case list. She doesn't want to believe it either, but she does see it because she can't not see it. And, and there, there is help, and, and people do recover, for sure. But there, there's really, we've come so far in helping people, in helping victims. We've come so far. 
We absolutely have. And it is hard to hear, right? It's hard to hear that people's families are mostly involved in this. But I think knowing that and really accepting that and being aware is going to open our eyes to a lot more cases like you were talking about. Yeah. And it's also like it is sexual abuse, but it's one of the tenets of sexual abuse and treatment of sexual abuse is don't even don't assume it stopped. Do not assume it has stopped. Do not assume that a child who's been trafficked by her mother, don't assume that the mother has not been trafficked, and don't assume that she is not currently being trafficked. It's, it's easy to judge, but it doesn't just come from nowhere a lot of times. There's multi-generational, and, and I've seen a lot of that. I, I had a, a mother who had had 10 children, and we had removed 10 children, and somebody remembered her from when she was a teenager, and she was trafficked then, and that was 30 years ago, 25 years ago. You know, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, and it doesn't pop out of nowhere. And where does it begin and where does it end, you know? But I'll tell you, it ends with somebody just being able to hear it. That's probably the most healing thing is being able to recognize it and see it and not not minimize it or ignore it, and but also not catastrophize it. It's just like, okay, this is your story. Let's, let's deal with it. Even if you don't know it's your story because it may be six months before a teenager figures out that it's your story or a year or 20 years. The beauty of the Community Coalition Against Human Trafficking is they can work directly with kids, and then those kids turn 18 or 20, and they can still work with them, or 30 or 40 or 50. They work with all ages. They're one of the few things that we have to offer that follows a kid long after the department is out of it, long after the kid is an adult, when the, when the adult, when the survivor has children of her own. They follow through the life. That's so great to hear. And they're free. They are free. It doesn't matter if you're documented, undocumented, have insurance, or homeless. It doesn't matter. There aren't many programs out there. I can't think of any that, that cover all of it. That's also important for our listeners to know is that if you think this might help someone, there is no harm. It's not going to cost anybody any money. They're, the network is there and you know wants to help this population. And they have safe houses. They can get food. It's, it's sort of secretive. Like, you can't go on the website and figure all this out because it's not on the website. And slavery is the same way and restore core. You won't get that from the website, but that's how it is. You just have to know how to do it. I mean, there is a website, but it's vague, and, and that's for a reason. It's to protect the victim. So thank you so much to our subject matter experts, Pierce Beckham and Dr. Martha Wyke, for joining us for this DCS Talks edition. So we heard a lot from Dr. Wyke about Community Coalition Against Human Trafficking, which is the agency that serves the eastern part of the state. There are similar agencies in our three other large regions. In the west side of Tennessee, there is Restore Corps with a very similar function to Community Coalition Against Human Trafficking, who functions to eradicate human trafficking by empowering survivors, equipping their communities, and seeking justice through systemic change. In Middle Tennessee, we have End Slavery, who, similar to Restore Corps and Community Coalition Against Human Trafficking, has the same function, but services the middle portion of Tennessee. We also discussed that you can report children who are being trafficked to the Tennessee DCS hotline and website. There are also other ways to report human trafficking in Tennessee. There is the Tennessee Human Trafficking Hotline, which is 1-855-558-6484, as well as a National Human Trafficking Hotline, which is 1-888-373-7888. Thank you, listener, for your interest about this important topic. 
January 11 is National Human Trafficking Awareness Day. In recognition of this important day, we encourage you to participate in a national day of Wear Blue. Wear blue clothing, take a picture, and share your picture on social media along with the hashtag WearBlueDay. Amanda and I will be participating along with the rest of the nation, and we would like to see you there as well. Please join DCS Talks again to hear other subject matter experts discussing ways to advocate for children and build resilient communities.